This episode is sponsored by World Anvil. World Anvil is an award-winning world-building and writing software for people who love to create rich and exciting worlds. Hey, Dungeon Crawler. Thanks for tuning in to our episode this week. But guess what? Did you know there's even more that you could be listening to? If you head over to our Patreon, you can get access to behind-the-scenes content, hearing more of the discussion before and after the show, and even comments in the middle that didn't make it into the final cut. Thank you so much for your support, and keep being great. This is Daniel. And this is Krebs. This is Alton. And I am Matai. And you're listening to Dungeon Crawlers Radio, the greatest geek podcast out there. All right, Dungeon Crawlers. Welcome to another episode of Dungeon Crawlers Radio, where we have a guest that is light years beyond your imagination. We have actor Graham McGrath. You know, someone that Josh has been eagerly and excitedly waiting to interview because he is well, so awesome. It. He is the but best. If, if, if you don't know that Josh is like the biggest Kroll fan, then you have not been listening to our shows yes. very well. Uh, because Graham is epic. He's yes. everything that Josh encourages us to be. Yes. And you know what, crawlers? Before we get too deep into this subject, I just want you to take a moment and just just internally answer this question. What is your stance on the 1983 sci-fi fantasy film Kroll? Because uh, that will be key to the rest of this episode as we discuss <laughs> the ins and outs and the experience of this uh, wonderful actor. Graham, thank you so very kindly for being here on the show with us today. Thank you very much. Um, I don't know what to say after that uh, amazing introduction. I'm not sure I'm worthy of it, but thank you all the same. Um, don't worry. It gets worse from here. Right. Uh, so, so, so Graham, uh, you and I have had a chance to talk before, especially because we were working together to make content for the Kroll Ultimate Charity event. Behind the scenes, before the episode started, Graham hopped on and then he immediately asked how the event went. And it occurred to me that I have been a terrible event coordinator. So here are the, here are the highlights. It went really well. We got a chance to show the film on the big screen in probably the most popular theater in the in our city area. in our in our local yeah. area and uh we did a digital remaster and it was gorgeous we had multiple people come up and tell us that they'd never seen it look so good so i want you to know that you looked brilliant on that screen. amazing i'm gonna yes. jump in here for a second when krebs says a digital remaster krebs did the digital remastering himself uh so this was definitely labor love and absolutely right it uh it was amazing everything was vivid uh basically it doesn't look like a movie from the 1980s this looked modern great and wonderful and you could see it really brought out the green in your costume graham it's in there <laughs> the emerald well, apprentice and, and not only that uh so alton the, the fourth member of our band that is not here uh he you know he he's played his part with the sticks and stuff like that. But it had always been, Kroll eh, was not his favorite movie. But seeing it on the big screen, with it remastered, he realized that it is a spectacle that must be seen on the big screen. And then he's like, ah, now I get it. Now I understand why the Krebs love this movie so much, which was amazing. I'm so pleased. And, I, and what you did um, let me know as well is that you did really well with your fundraising target, which I'm really pleased to hear. Yes. Good on you. Thank yeah, you, Thank we you. we exceeded our goal, which was great, and we've we kind of have this in the back of our mind that we might try to do this with other films, you know, at least once a year. 
I've been doing this for almost 15 years now. And, you know, just seeing what you did. And at the very end, you know, definitely wasn't expecting your little uh, blurb about us. It was just, man, that was amazing and heartwarming after all these years. Yeah, I, I wanted to thank all the dungeon crawlers who made it out to the event. But for those of you who weren't able to make it, uh, Graham, you put together a special message uh, and uh, sent that over for us, which we ran, uh, which Krebs uh, edited into this great uh, role and uh, ran before the the movie. Um, but like, uh, share with our listeners kind of some of the uh, the the origins of, of of where that came from, and and uh, you know maybe a little brief synopsis of the of the message that you delivered. Krebs did a fantastic job of putting that that film together because. With the the questions and um, you know answers and and insights that I I recorded here and sent across to him, it just brought it all to life and made it relevant. And you could see it linked to the elements of the film. It just flowed incredibly well. But yeah. um, what I was what I was you know really happy to do as well was to to give um, Dungeon Crawlers a, a shout out for for its fifteen years and and. Um, you know to recognize recognize you guys but also um you know to to give a shout out for primary care um and and what it does and and just the facts that um i mean i looked it up on on you know i, I sort of looked into it and even even went to google earth just to see you know where this was in relation to the world to, you know to, from where i was and and um you know it's it's just f fantastic that you have this facility and uh yeah, I admire that you you've you've done something, and you know we're not talking millions of dollars raised, but with the charities that I work for, it's the small amounts that make all the difference. It's it's the you know lots of people doing um, making an effort, taking one step to make a, a collective positive difference. So uh, yeah, I, I you know I was I was um, pleased to help, Matt. So we were uh, infinitely grateful that that you yes. did that for us. Thank you so Indeed. very kindly. Indeed, my uh, my son had a, a, a couple of uh, issues when he was just a baby, and we spent quite a lot of time at Primary Children's Hospital. And uh, you know, the you know, even the small amounts that get raised because Primary Children will do things for um, underserved uh, families that can you know, basically not being able to pay has never been a bar to getting the care that your child yeah. needs there. And so these kind of things can make a huge difference to a family's medical bills. It's not going to put a new wing on the building, but that's not what they're asking for. Mm, you no. know, they're like, you know, here's a child that needs treatment and this is going to go towards that. So yes, uh, very much appreciated your help in, uh, us reaching that goal. Cause it, it definitely goes to a worthy cause. Yeah. And in addition to that, one of the things that Graham did in it, you know, first of all, he took time out of his busy schedule to answer, you know, nonsense fan questions for the real, but also <laughs> he gave this really generous shout out to both the podcast and of course to primary children's. But he also um, posted on his LinkedIn that we were doing this event and it garnered some much needed attention because we were so close to the, to our goal and the needle stopped moving. Like everyone who was hearing the message did what they could. And we were so grateful for that. And it seemed like we weren't going to hit the mark. And then the night before the event, like late night, like after midnight, um, all of a sudden there was a donation that came in that pushed us up and over our goal that, that pushed us up to, to our goal and then another donation came in that was pretty generous that took us a 
fairly significant step past that um, into deeper, you know, success territory. And I honestly don't think that those things would have occurred if we didn't have your support, Graham. So thank you very much for helping us make that happen. And thank you for everything that you did for Primary Children's on this event. So thank you, thank you, thank you. All right, so there's this movie called Kroll, and, (laughs) you know, I've heard of that movie. Have you heard of that movie? It was in 1983. It was a sci-fi fantasy film. It was Light Years Beyond Our Imagination. It was directed by Peter Yates. And it had this wonderful cast, largely British cast. In fact, almost entirely, like 98%, with the 2% being Ken Marshall, uh, (laughs) who was... Who had had who just come off of like some some pretty strong success in a in a miniseries? We've talked on the show before about how the '80s was like miniseries was king, man. Miniseries yes. was everywhere, um, and he had done a miniseries for Marco Polo, and he had become sort of like the most recent super attractive heartthrob, and uh, and then they decided to make this film Kroll. And he got the lead role in that. And he is the only Westerner. He's the only American in this film. Um, and, uh, well, you know, except for the voice of Lindsay Cross. We'll talk about that later. But uh, but also <laughs> in this this film, this film, you know, brought in a number of classically trained uh, British actors, some very famous, profound actors such as like Freddie Jones and Alan Armstrong and Francesca Annis and Robbie Coltrane, Robbie Coltrane, Robbie Coltrane too soon, too soon. Uh, Liam Neeson makes a, makes an appearance early in his career in this film uh, amongst myriad others. And, and there's also this one young lad, this, this young boy, Graham McGrath playing the role of Titch. Uh, I know you kind of touched on this in the, in the reel that we did for the event, but I'm probably going to ask you some repeat questions such as for you at that time, what was, what was that film experience? I mean, there was the experience of making the movie, but then there was also the experience of the movie being out in the wild of those two things. What was that like for you at that time? I think uh, making, um, making the film was, was really exciting, you know, and, and um, quite extraordinary to for 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 me at that age to be part of something pretty epic um in terms of scale of production and all the uh, crazy creative things going on and um but every you know I just loved going to pinewood um I loved being part of of what was going on I loved seeing you know the stages um and, and what they built on the stages and then you'd come back to them a couple of weeks later and something else was there instead you know there was just just phenomenal and um and and i probably bothered a lot of people with uh, with my inquisitiveness um because i just wanted to know how everything worked and how what was that made of and how does that that work and you know from um especially derek meddings um bless his soul uh with special with the special effects he, he was a, oh, yeah. quite present on set a lot of the time and um it, it was just brilliant absolutely brilliant um, in terms of when it was out in the wild, Krebs, um, I sp- it was a, less of an impact because I was, um, you know, I was back in, in in my real world, if you like, in terms of, you know, being at school or, well, actually summer holidays and then then back at school. So that that was sort of just, you know, um, pretty normal. The, the, the premiere at Leicester Square in London was was quite exciting. That that you know, just to to go there, and and the the funny thing is, and my dad, um, who was sitting next to me, laughed because when um, the the rocks come tumbling down the mountain, 
Um, I, you know, <laughs> it's such a great shot in Panavision, but uh, I, I completely ducked out of the side. <laughs> I, I was so I was so into the you know to, to seeing it, seeing the finished version. I, I was very much in it, and uh, yeah, it was great. The beast terrified me, even at ten. So, so I have a question. What was it like being ten? being in this extraordinary world where you know you're acting and being part of this film and getting to be around you know a tiger uh, a, a dog and all these other animals because i mean i don't know if a 10 year old if it was 10 year old me would be okay being around a giant tiger uh even with the trainer and stuff like that that had to have been fantastic and amazing and then go from all that and transitioning back to the mundane world of going to school and doing the day-to-day stuff yeah it's um it's interesting because i suppose i've i've taken things in my stride a bit uh in that yes you do extraordinary things and and kroll um wasn't my sort of first uh step into into film or tv making so uh, you know i'd had had some training and and i'd sort of been doing these things and i suppose daniel when you go from you know, over the course of six months, there were days when I wasn't on set. Yeah. And and then you just go back to school and that carries on as normal. Um, when I was, you know, um, shoot days, I'd have Tim with me, who was my stand in. Um, and we, you know, sort of kept each other company. But we do our school lessons in, our, in you know, in dressing room um, with our tutor. So as much as it was fantastic when we got to, to step in, it was it was um still balanced i think um, but yeah nevertheless you can't take away some of some of the extraordinary things we were we were doing you know i remember watching uh the behind the scenes special there was this whole segment where you're discussing the experience with the tiger holding the tiger head on your lap and um one of my all-time favorite things to say it always just tickles me is anytime someone watches it with me i lean over i'm like that tiger is as high as a kite that tiger oh, really is stoned out of its mind right and i believe there was i believe you told a story about like that moment they you guys went to go get the shot and then the trainer came in and gave some advice on how fast you had to take that shot could you tell us do you what do you remember of that experience of holding that massive tiger head on your lap and the time constraints i i remember it quite vividly because there was a the, the energy um on set was was tense everyone was tense it was the point where you know the the the, the producers that everyone was putting um you know a 10 year old lad into a cage set um <laughs> with a very large um you know category a dangerous animal um who was pretty stoned to be fair um, <laughs> but the only other person within on that side of 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 the cage was um the trainer with a rifle should anything, you know, should, should, um, you know, there was quite an abrupt coming out of, of the sedation, um, you know, and it's quite interesting just thinking about that because those things wouldn't happen nowadays, you know, in terms of working with animals, we've moved on in that respect, but it was, it was, there was the sense of urgency. Um, and Peter was, was inclined to, to do lots of, he liked to do lots of takes and capture lots of footage. Um, so, and, and I think he was getting um, slightly nudged, uh by by Derek Cracknell the first AD he's sort of tapping his watch um while while the uh, camera was running because and literally once there was cut it was almost like I was yanked yanked out <laughs> um and and it was 
pretty much within about 30 seconds the the uh the tiger was was back on its feet and um Whoa. wow yeah there, there was no yeah i mean at one point i mean they i went to they took me down to um to sort of familiarize uh, me or or get the tiger to be familiar with me um so that i could walk alongside it when we were in the black fortress um that was sort of on the cards and i but you know i was pretty fearless i didn't want anyone um you know a stunt person stepping in i just wanted to do everything you know vic armstrong taught was teaching tim and i how to to fall off from height when we did the bridge scene behind it there was there was a platform and a, and a sort of 30 40 foot fall he was teaching us to do summer salt falls as if we'd been shot off the top of a building you know and, and how to land safely you know it was just um i was up for everything was he doing that just for fun or were they still planning to kill titch at that point <laughs> that's a good question maybe they changed their mind and i actually thought you know what actually no let's kill him off this guy's a this guy's a pain in the butt um keeps asking <laughs> questions um no that it was it was just the generosity of um of the people involved that just happened to be a moment where 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 vic and, and some of his crew were were able to give us that sort of bit of time and and i think there's a there's a degree of investment in mind as well when they do these things because it's about helping helping us develop and what we might do in future i guess and that dovetails into a curiosity I've had for a while, which is you were surrounded by all of these, you know, fairly well experienced actors for the most part. Some of them newer to the scene than others, but that would later go on and and have pretty uh, broad careers. As as the youngest person on the set, as as sort of like the newest to the scene, were there any like special moments or special? sort of like nuggets of wisdom or experience that were shared with you by these individuals? Is there one that stands out in your mind that's like, oh, that was really special and I've held on to that all these years? That's a good question. Uh, apart from the fact that I can't think of anything specific, there were there was plenty along the way, but, but um, you know, which, and, and just, I loved watching. I loved watching um, Liam Neeson uh, when, when he, his character died because there was, a process at work in terms of the way Peter was working with Liam and, and what Liam wanted to, you know, to do right. And, um, you know, just seeing how things were done uh, for the big screen with, with really um, expert people was, was an honor and a privilege. You know, even to this day, I still want to keep learning and developing. You know, Graham, you've mentioned how, you know, in between, uh, shots you'd be going back to school and of course when it was done and going through post-production then you were back at, at school as well any of your mates from school see you in your previous productions uh for before crawl as well as you know the movie itself how did the people how, how'd your classmates and stuff react did anybody ever recognize you yeah I, I mean funnily enough when i first went to to primary school um so what five or six years old uh, I, I'd done a. I think one of the first things I did for TV was a was a um, a toothpaste commercial, a Colgate toothpaste commercial, <laughs> and they used to do a thing where the ring of confidence went round your head and it went ding, you know, at the end. Um, and so that was that was the thing that I did. And and I'm, I think my line was no fillings today, Mum, and I'd come out of the dentist because I used Colgate. 
And I was just at school, you know, it didn't really mean anything to me at, at, at that age. I just I didn't wear it. I didn't wear the things I, I did. Um, yeah. I was just, just me at, at school. But one of my best friends to this day, um, his older brother, who was in a year or two above, came running up and said, your name's David. I've seen you on TV. And, and <laughs> could not, could not, you know, actually work out that I wasn't called David and that, you know, it... <laughs> that was just what was going on with kids and um but my best friend who I, I, I sort of talked about he was a bit of an ally because he and I went to the to the same speech and drama um uh after school um classes and did the same lambda exams and and he had um a, a degree of of uh significant success as well so it was good you know we and, and I think that was a, a why we were such good buddies because we kind of knew that it wasn't necessarily um easy to do this stuff it just kept kept us both uh our feet you know planted on the ground and and um but we just assimilate into normal you know normal life and as i say ni- neither of us wore, wore what we did as a kind of bragging tool quite the opposite i think <laughs> yes yes so i have a question um kind of follow up with everything we've talked about so far you know you were 10. Did you develop any lasting relationships from doing this film with any of the, the older actors? Uh, not really, no, Daniel. Okay. I mean, the, the one thing that, that I've experienced, you know, throughout, uh, and it's probably harder as a kid, but there are a few occasions where you make those, you forge lasting friendships. Um but there are also lots of uh, occasions where you come back into company again, where you meet some some people you worked with before, and that's happened many times. Um, specifically in relation to Krull, you know, I bumped into Alan Armstrong some years later, and it was just like meeting a family friend again. You know, there there was suddenly the the, the years in between shrink, you know, and it's and it's the same. I guess in life in general, when you haven't seen someone that you were close to and worked with for a long time, and you meet up and um you know not not everyone is naturally you know naturally uh builds those friendships but where you have good relationships they they still sustain to a certain extent but it's it's remarkable how sometimes you know the the you do do work with the same people both in front of and behind the the camera absolutely and it's such an interesting world that that you get to build with these individuals. You'll see, maybe you'll see them down the road, maybe not. But the world mm-hmm. that you built together that one time uh, can be that magical thing that cements that friendship, that familiarity for for such a long time. And you know, speaking of world building, we have some very cool sponsors who have been helping to keep our podcast alive. And we'd like to take a moment and give them their due. We'd like to let them tell us a little bit about what they do and how they can help you build your own worlds. Now let's talk about our sponsor, World Anvil. World Anvil is an award-winning world-building and writing software for people who like to create rich and exciting worlds. With their software, you can create your world, manage your campaign, plan your novel, and wow your players or readers as you make your worlds come to life. You can find them at worldanvil.com, and if you put in the discount code DCR40, you will receive a 40% discount today. Thank you very much for taking a moment to listen to our sponsors. We very much appreciate them and their support. You know, one of my things, uh, Dungeon Crawlers, that you, if you listen to this show for a while, you know I love to throw in a few jokes. 
And in honor of our guest, Graham <laughs> McGrath, I actually have some original material that I've put together. Now, one of Ooh. these I've, I've used before. Th this one's not original. I've used this one before on the show, but it seems appropriate today. So, uh, Mr. McGrath, have you heard about the, uh, the two Cyclops brothers? The two Cyclops brothers? Mm-hmm. Neither have I. I suppose uh, uh, neither. <laughs> that that was the punchline. Yeah. So neither yeah. have I. Neither have I. I got it. Okay. Yeah. I was. I, I was trying to be fun. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you see. You see. see Graham is also jokes. a dad. Graham is I also a dad. But, but he has taste. So listen. I, yeah. Don't, yeah. don't don't think I. I my my disdain is authentic because I'm going to use that joke now. <laughs> <laughs> but I do have one. That they, my original joke just for you is. Uh, do you know how many people survived the raid on the Black Fortress? I do not. A titch more than five. <laughs> <laughs> Does that take you a long Did these take you a long time? <laughs> oh, I, I stayed up nights. And lastly, what do you call a magician who's lost his magic? Just Ian. <laughs> <laughs> why did that take me so long wow <laughs> that took me a hot second wow oh my gosh wow. sometimes the... going Matt. it's good it's good to have this uh you know i i love i love silly humor you know it's harmless and it's fun i'm, I'm a big fan of, of uh wordplay and puns and all sorts when you are when you tried the cyclops one i was trying to think of something funny to say like well at least they've got a pair of eyes between them but, <laughs> You know, your, yep. your punishment was better. <laughs> oh, oh man. That's so good. Okay. Um, there, there are a few things about Kroll that I need an insider's view on because there's it's very hard to convince people of certain facts if you don't have someone who was there. And now we do. One of the things that keeps happening, and this this actually cycles on Wikipedia, it cycles on IMDB, it's it's in multiple places such that other Articles that have been written have cited this as fact, and I have every reason to believe that this is not true. And you and I have already talked about this, but for the purposes of the of the people at home, there is a little tidbit, a little quote-unquote factoid, that Robbie Coltrane was completely voiced over in much the same way that Lisette Anthony was. Graham, is, is that true? Was he dubbed over by Michael Elphick in The Post? It's such an extraordinary urban myth that's that's gathered momentum and and mm. and, and infiltrated, uh, you know, uh, f these reference sources. Robbie did a um, you know a, a Cockney accent, if you like, uh, mm. a, a working man's accent for you know, even though he was very Scottish, that was his accent and that is his voice that I heard on screen, you know, because it, it was the same. Now. We all had to dub some of our lines, you know, because if you're on the back of a of a Clydesdale on a treadmill with a 50 foot blue screen behind you and a, <laughs> and a, a propeller the size of a of a um, B-52 uh, blaring in front of you, you know, and you're supposed to have said something on the back of the horse, you got to go in and dub it. And, and there are all sorts of reasons why you do that. But um, maybe there's just a, you know... Um, a, a conflict of information it's just just got legs but and i suppose people know robbie as being scottish 
um, with a Scottish accent. But look at what he did in in Harry Potter. You know, that's oh, yeah. he's he's a very accomplished, and and he made a choice of you know as part of this um, you know group of bandits that that was that was his uh, approach and that was his voice. I don't think he, he you know Michael Elphick even sounds much you know even similar. So um, I can see why people you know have have spun that yarn oh yeah but and meaning absolutely no disrespect to michael elphick at all but absolutely. um but to your point like in 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 the intervening years between 1983 and now we have what eight harry potter movies in which robbie coltrane was hagrid we have goldeneye that he performed in as a russian <laughs> and um, don't forget nuns on the run and don't forget nuns on the yeah. run <laughs> uh, we have so many resources. We have so many samples of what Robbie Coltrane sounds like. And, and every time my brother and sister and I sit down and we watch this movie, which is often, um, we, <laughs> I, I, I found myself just like, like in a state of rebellion. I was just like, that's not dubbed over. Look, you, you can tell ADR. You can tell when they record audio after the fact. And that is in the volume. That is in the space. That is that is at Pinewood. That is Robbie Coltrane. Well, can't a man even talk to himself without being interrupted? You know, just like, like it's just. Exactly. Exactly. It's so very Robbie Coltrane, right? And so I, I want you to know that between you and son of producer, uh, son of the producer, Ron Silverman, uh, Mark Silverman, between mm. you two, you guys confirmed for me a hundred percent that that is absolutely Robbie Coltrane. I want you to know that really that vindicated my soul. I just needed mm. you to know that. So you've mentioned uh, productions that you were involved in uh, prior to Coral, and you've done a lot of things since then as well. What are what, let's talk about some of those things? What are some things that you that you really liked doing that allowed you to just kind of stretch and grow as a performer? Um, it's interesting because you mentioned earlier about, um, you know, when you're talking about Ken Marshall um, and and sort of coming from uh, miniseries. And I went on from Kroll to do a couple of miniseries. Um, one was about um, Hitler's architect. Um, and I played uh, who um, Rutger Hauer played that character and I played the young Rutger Hauer. Oh, uh, Wow. Wow. Yeah, that was my first time, the first time that I worked with Sir John Gilgood, um, who played my father. And um, we were we were in Germany as well. I remember we, we flew to Vienna and Munich, um, different different locations. Um, so that was pretty. Um, I don't know why that sticks in my memory, but it, it was. I suppose being close to re recreating such an important part of history was was quite fascinating. Um, you know, a very serious undertone, um, notwithstanding the fact that I had to learn pages of Latin to recite during a scene. And it was a very long, slow camera tracking around the room as I sat with my father in the study reciting um, Latin, which um, wasn't easy. And uh, <laughs> it, it uh, yeah, um, but but this the other mini series was Peter the Great um, about the Russian Tsar, and um, I played the young Peter, and that was terrific for all sorts of reasons, um, uh, and also involved horses, and I love horses, but um, and I love riding, and I love I love sort of doing fairly crazy things on horses as well, but I had the opportunity. Um, 
because they wanted me to test ride the horse before we shot the the particular scene. So I went off with with a Russian soldier from from a a cavalry that was providing um, horses for the shoot. And uh, he was, you know, this was the USSR, by the way. This was this is behind the Iron Curtain. Yeah. And we went off. I was on this army horse, which when I let let it go, it just belted. It was fantastic. And and the <laughs> Russian soldier was worried that I'd lost control and sort of um, came up. But we were we were riding across the this this uh, this land and and then came back. And it, you know, it was just moments like that. When we actually came to do the shoot, all I was doing as as uh, young Peter was was gently walking down through the village and and making observations about the the poverty of of the people. Um, but uh, there are there is something else I did, um, Matt, when I was um, was about twenty, at, um, which was about a Viking group that kidnapped my character, and then we were sort of on this vendetta. Um, and that involved lots of bareback horse riding and and crazy stuff and sword fighting, and um, I worked with uh, another well-known stuntman, Pat Roach, who's the guy that Indiana Jones fights when the the aeroplane is spinning around on the ground. Oh you, yeah, the you, big tall bald guy with the handlebar yeah, mustache. It, oh yeah, and you see you see him pop up in lots of you know he was the the, mm-hmm. the henchman for for lots of of of, of that era, but he was. Um, absolutely brilliant to work with, and, and he um, taught me a lot actually about sort of how to to make action work for the screen in the right way. And and he'd come, he he his career started as a wrestler. Um, Pat was very good at bringing the you know the the action um, theatrically but effectively to screen. So um, I'm I'm just sort of rambling now because of you know of, of different things I, I I can think about that stand out, but uh, I don't want to bore your um, bore your listeners too much. <laughs> no, it's it's fascinating listening to the other things that you've done. Uh, Krebs and I both grew up in uh, in California. I spent a great deal of my teenage years in the ocean itself, uh, and so the ocean is is something very special to me. Uh, and I remember looking at some of that on your on your CV that you. We're involved in this ocean conservancy, um, and so let's let's talk about that. What are some things that? Two questions. What are some things that a normal person can do uh, to help in this regard? And secondly, what are some specific things that our listeners might do to help uh, support your uh, your charity? Well, I'm going to avoid the obvious one because we're a charity, so donating is is <laughs> is the easiest one. But 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 that that comes once you once you understand the purpose and feel part of it. But we we are registered with Charities Aid Foundation America, so we, you know we we can receive um, donations. But actually, if you are aware of a, a sea life aquarium, um, there are several in in North America. There's also one at um, Legoland, California. There's things like uh, uh, the beach clean events. And when I say beach clean, it's not always necessarily by the ocean. It might be a river or a lake or um, some kind of water course. But we um, we ran our, our, our annual one um, in June. We had um, uh, thousands of people from 55 global locations take part over a period of 24 hours, you know, to to, you know, measure what we what we collect. And and but to feel part of this global collective of, of, of doing something and highlighting, you know, plastic pollution in, 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 um, in the oceans, because whatever goes into the water 
system ends up in the ocean uh, and then ends up on a, on a beach somewhere or inside a turtle. My approach is let's let's not be a doom and gloom uh, approach to it. Let, let's positively inspire change because this is a good thing that we can do. So going back to that beach clean, anyone can contact their nearest sea life and find out when they're doing one or, or join the, 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 the annual one. That's a really simple way of getting involved and feeling part of something much bigger. Yeah, it, it's really amazing how our world itself is designed to constantly recycle itself and keep it in this, you know, perfect type of zone for life to exist. And as we've been manipulating that and messing with that, it's, it's kind of messed things up. But at the same time, like you said, it's really easy just cleaning up a beach or a river and it, it helps add to that. It really does. It's, it's those small things that make a, a difference. And and you're talking about the, the oceans, you know, which cover most of the planet and yeah. provide provide fifty percent of our oxygen. Mm-hmm. You know, and and as as we overfish or 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 destroy, um, we 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 know about it from rainforest destruction that we're creating an issue in terms of of air quality and and weather systems. The oceans, actually, as much as we understand them, you know, it's still we don't know what's going on in the deepest parts of the ocean. No. And and yet we're sort of, you know, our, our species is not very good at sort of uh, thinking ahead about what, what damage we, we're doing. But, you know, as I say, it's not about doom and gloom. It's the positive stuff and and yeah. having fun with families going to uh, an aquarium. And it's not just sea life. Other organizations do it as well. But it, it's it's how we can lay, you know, leave a good legacy for for our our, our kids and their kids to um, to build upon and correct the mistakes that we might have made so far. You know, maybe I missed it earlier, but uh, can you share with us the name of your charity? Yes. It's called the sea life trust. Sea life trust. Sea life trust. Dot org. Dot UK. If anyone wants to look it up. So I've got, I've got one more uh, question. If we can go back to crawl for a second, Mr. Graham McGrath, somebody comes to you and says, Hey, in the era of nostalgia, where everything old is new again, we've decided to make a Krull sequel. And in this one, uh, you know, Titch has grown up, has, uh, is, is uh, living his, his destiny. If, if you were invited into the writer's room, what would happen with Titch's character in Krull 2? Whoa, Matt, that's a, that's a, yeah, put me on the spot. Um, <laughs> well, wouldn't that be a dream come true? Um, uh, for me, especially, yes. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. yeah, Krebs would want to be in that room. <laughs> yeah. First of all, I'd, um, I'd call Krebs and say, right, what do you think? Um, <laughs> are you free to pop down and have a chat with these guys? We're working on some ideas because Krebs, you told me about this kind of, your your synopsis uh, which is phenomenal i couldn't come close to that with with what i might say i would love to see titch um involved in in what's developed i can't i i, I was really blown away by what your what you put together krebs you know and, and i can't just i can't sum it up quickly enough but neither can i some really terrific ideas and and obviously very well thought out but 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 properly structured and constructed to to make it very compelling as a as a potential screenplay well not just first of all thank you that is 
incredibly generous of you to say thank you. Um, but it, it, the encouraging part for me and for people like my brother and my sister is that we're not alone in this either because artist Sean Swanner, who very generously donated oh. a print of his commemorative 40th anniversary poster for our event, he had made yeah. a proof of concept uh, sequel poster for... Um, the Serpent and the Storm. The Serpent and the Storm. Yes, that's right. His idea for the serpent and the storm is a pretty solid idea. Uh, Matthew, Sarah, and I have have this concept of a trilogy that we want to do um, that takes place not long after the end of the first film, and uh, we, we've talked about the concept of like a remake where it's a faithful remake, but it also takes moments and opportunities to fill in some backstories, some hooks that were never fully explored in the first film. Uh, there are so many brilliant story hooks that are worth exploring in Kroll, such that my brother, sister, and I, I mean, we have nearly 10 hours now of recorded mm -hmm. audio of us just theorizing about what these stories are. And so Kroll is an incredibly rich mythos with wonderful opportunities for story exploration. A sequel or a trilogy would make a ton of sense. I mean, I was just going to jump in because, you know, I, I had a review on my first book where someone's like, oh, there's this huge plot hole. It doesn't even go down that rabbit hole. But the beauty of that is like the second novel is where I jumped into that rabbit hole. So, mm -hmm. you know, even though there are plot holes in the original movie, you know, if there was a sequel or a third one or even novellas that were written, you can jump down those rabbit holes. There, There's always ways to, uh, to write those stories out. In our discussions, talking about plot holes, the question is, is it a plot hole or is it a story hook? Yeah, yeah. plot hole or story hook. And there's there's this notion, I mean, of course, everyone understands the expression Chekhov's gun, right? The idea that mm -hmm. if you're going to introduce something in the first act, you better use it by the third. There is the antithesis to that, which is Sulu's foil, which, by the way, is one of the best names ever if you're a Star Trek fan. But uh, <laughs> Sulu's foil is the idea that you never built up to something and suddenly it's here. Or similarly, you introduce something and then just never use it. I don't think Kroll has... I don't think Kroll has very much that Alton would argue that it has some of that where they get to a certain threshold or they get to a certain moment. And then all of a sudden something pays off. I disagree. Having watched the movie um, more times than I am years old, I would definitely argue that that is not the case. Uh, but there are definitely things that they touch on and then just don't explore further. So I think that there's tons of opportunity for story hooks they're not they're not plot holes they're story hooks for sure graham mcgrath you are so amazing thank you so very much for being patient with uh with a bunch of people over in the u.s who just want to talk to you about one 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 movie you did in your storied <laughs> career thank you so very kindly for being so generous as you always are and for hanging out with us it's been an absolute pleasure having you here it's my my privilege um thank you so much for having me i hope i haven't uh turned your listeners off too much with my my rambling recollections but um really grateful all i can say is here's to the sequel <laughs> that's <laughs> right here here yeah. and as yes. is tradition the first time we get an opportunity to interview someone on the show we like to have the traditional lightning round now in this lightning round i don't expect you to have anything prepared in fact that's actually the, pre the preference i'm just going to ask you a series of questions rapid fire style i just want the first answer that comes to the top of your head they're mostly softball questions graham mcgrath are you ready i'm ready awesome and here we 
go. Graham, what is your favorite color? Blue. Are you a pet guy? Yes. Did you ever play the Atari or arcade versions of the Kroll video game? Yes, but more recently than you might think. Or just as recently as I have. What is your favorite Kroll keepsake or memorabilia to date? I have an original movie poster um, in a frame, but I also have my original uh, stunt T-shirt, which fit me at the time. It's not going to fit me anytime soon, um, but I, I've, I've got that safely uh, stored away. Are you going to let your son wear that? He might want to, actually. He's, he's, uh, I showed him your film. Oh, no. uh, I hope he enjoyed it. Uh, and then finally, uh, what is your stance on the 1983 sci-fi trilogy capper Return of the Jedi? Let's talk about Krull. That's a good idea. Let's talk about <laughs> Krull for a second. <laughs> Graham, thank you very That's much okay. for being here on the show. Thank you very much for being part of one of my all-time favorite films, for holding a tiger's head in your lap. Thank you so very much for all that you've done. Uh, and, and, and absolutely with, with all genuineness and, and sincerity, thank you so very kindly for, for taking the time to support our charity event and, and for being here on the show, but also for just being a genuine human being and for being a, a good friend. Thank you, sir, very much for all that you do and for all that you are. Thank you so much. Yes. All right, folks. Sadly, it is time to end our wonderful discussion with Graham McGrath. For those of you that would like to help support his charity, go to the Sea Life Trust. Uh, look them up. It's very simple. You can do a Google search uh, and do something to support uh, you know, our world. But more importantly, if you haven't already seen the movie Crawl, go see it. Check out. You, know, you can see Graham as a little 10-year-old boy running across the countryside with a crazy magician and a bunch of other people and eventually fight next to a tiger. So with that said, we'll catch you next time. And my little nerdlings, this it was given me to know. Always let your geek flag fly, so say we all. And whether you are doing your part to save the world's oceans or you're liberating an entire planet from the beast and his slayers, always remember to be epic and don't suck. Remember, the force will be with you always. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you like this episode, please give us a five-star rating on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you find us.